Right. Thank you for the great songs this morning. I know I certainly enjoyed it. I thank Nate also. Uh, fantastic. I, th- I thought that was great, which uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, one of my favorite things to hear about is the deity of Christ. Um, because everything, you realize that everything we are doing here, this entire Christmas season, every I mean, all of it hinges on that one truth. Was Christ God? Because if he wasn't, we're all doomed. If he wasn't, he can't save. Um, so, that I mean, obviously that's a... It's a great thing to hear about because it's it's the gospel, it's the good news that the the one who gave us life he was born as a human and he did live that perfect life and he did die in our place and was resurrected and now it's like Nate was saying it, it, we 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 get a little lopsided and sometimes it's a little aggravating at how much emphasis is put on Jesus in the manger and not near enough emphasis is put on Jesus on the throne because that's where he is. So, and, and as we go into 2 Peter, or I mean into 1 Peter chapter 2 today, this entire book that Peter wrote, this entire chapter that we're going to look at today also hinges on that very thing. So if you would, turn there. And as you turn there, I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much just for these truths that we get to hear about, that we get to talk about, that you have revealed to us as true. And although we cannot wrap our minds completely around them, although in our humanity we may not understand them fully, you've still granted us the ability to believe them. And I praise you for that. I praise you for that gift of faith. And I, I know, Lord, that there's people out there who have not believed in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, maybe even here. God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to proclaim it more intentionally, that they could hear so that they could believe. And of course, we ask you that you would cause them, that you would open their eyes so that they could see, that you would open their ears so that they could hear and be converted and believe. Lord, I pray, God, for that. And I thank you for the message that Nate brought. Thank you for the songs that we heard. For all the good things that you give us, we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in the second chapter... First Peter, he starts out with a therefore. And again, the therefore, when you see that in Scripture, he's referring back to something. He says, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So it's kind of like saying, because of this. And so we back up, because of what? Look at verse 23 in chapter 1. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
So because, remember, Peter's writing this to believers. He's writing this to Christians. So because you have been born again, lay aside these things. Verse 25, he says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Because the word of the Lord endures forever, lay aside these things. He's given us plenty of reason to praise God. He's given us plenty of reason to lay aside malice to lay aside deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. And so, and the picture he gives here is like laying aside an old filthy garment. You just, you take it off completely. Um, It's casting it away, getting it away from you. Not like putting it aside so that you can pick it up again later, but no, you're going to, it'd be like in a, in, the, in a time when a sickness, some kind of plague was going through and you had these germs on your garments, what would they do with them? They wouldn't throw them over here and then go put them back on later. No, they would burn them, get rid of them, cast them away completely. And, and I'll look at each one of these individual things he, he lists here, starting with malice. Malice is, is it's evil. Basically, in a a nutshell, the word malice means evil. But when you really kind of start to consider the word, it's more than just the act of evil. It's the underlying effect of evil, and it's the underlying cause of evil. It's the thoughts that lead you to the actions of evil. It's, It's all of those things that are causes the process of you to go in a direction of doing something against God's will. That's what malice is. And so we, th- we think about when your mind starts to wander, which we, I'm pretty sure all of ours does, into evil directions. Temptations come and our mind goes in a direction that would cause us to lead there. That's where he's, he talks about taking that thought captive. We have to be intentional when our mind, to control our minds. Not let it wander. Not let it drift off of good things and un- onto, into unholy things, but no, to take it captive and realize what's happening at that moment and say, no, I'm going to focus my mind. I'm going to bring it back here. I'm going to focus it on Christ. That's how you lay aside malice. He says all deceit, the guiles. I think the King James may say guiles. Trickery. The Greek word here is dolos, and it actually means bait. I thought about this. I thought, how... How interesting. He says to lay aside this deceit. It's, he's talking about using bait. It's like a kind of like you, you can see it in a lot of businesses, how they will bait you in because they feel like, has anybody ever done the Branson thing where you go to the, up to the Bass Pro Shop and they, they, hey, for $50 you get this full weekend at Branson's. Anybody done that? I've, I've done it. And what they, all you have to do is listen to our presentation about these uh, timeshares. Hey, no problems. Listen, I almost bought one of them things and I didn't have the money to do it. The reason I went was because I needed a cheap vacation, right? But they're using a bait of this cheap vacation and they get you there and they put this high-pressure sales on you. That's kind of what this is talking about. Well, that would definitely fit into this. But it's also talking about how we will do those things. We will... It's a... just being deceitful. It's not just directly bold-faced lies, although that would um, definitely apply here as well. But just not being up front. 
not being transparent, not being honest with people the way that we should be. Um, and it, it's, it, he also, uh, it, it's like using an allure to draw in those, and especially those who are already suffering from some sort of excessive emotional pain. And that's what our world is about today. If somebody is in an emotional situation, there's all kinds of people there to prey on them. We, we as Christians should have no part of those kind of things. Praying on people that are weak in a moment, weak in a, in a time in their life. Uh, you know, the tel- there's all kinds of things for elderly. And they pray on the fact that these people may be lonely. And they call them on the phone and they answer and it's somebody that's willing to talk to them and then pretty soon they've taken half their savings. As Christians, we shouldn't have any part of that um, as well. And then he talks about hypocrisy, which goes right along with the deceit. It's saying one thing and living another, right? We all know what hypocrites are. We've all probably accused somebody of hypocrisy. And if you're a Christian, you've probably been accused of hypocrisy. Because that kind of goes with the territory. All those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites which is true to an extent because none of us are perfect, we would all admit that. We would all admit that I'm still a sinner. And that's why I have to have grace. That's why I'm saved by grace. But there's another level of that that we should definitely be avoiding. We shouldn't be living in a way that would let people point, see, I I knew you weren't real. You're just another one of those hypocrites. We don't want to be living that way. Um, the word actually refers back to, in the, in the biblical times, stage presence, acting. That's what hypocrisy, the word, meant. It, it actually gives the picture of wearing a mask. Being somebody who we are not, or trying to put forth this image who we are not. And we should all probably stop and examine ourselves right now. When I go into my daily life, when I, when I teach school, because I'm, I'm a school teacher, and when I go in places with my family and with friends who aren't here today, you know, just other friends, am I the same person there than I am here on Sunday morning? Do I act the same? Do I strive to talk about the same things? Do I try to avoid evil conversations? And there's, I mean, obviously there's times when I don't. And that's what Peter is saying here. Lay that aside. Quit worrying about trying to fit in and putting on some kind of mask either here. Because it may happen on Sunday morning. It may ha- it, well, I promise you it happens on Sunday mornings all over the world, especially in the United States. Especially here in the Bible Belt where there's all kinds of people in church right now who are putting on a mask and then they're going to go home today and they're going to do something completely different. They're going to go do what they really love and they're going to watch Sunday afternoon football or they're going to do whatever it is, but they're going to be a different person. He's saying, put that aside. Be transparent. Be who you are. What you see is what you get. And then he says, evil speaking. Or no, he says envy first, which envy, again, it's the desire to have what other ha- others have. 
And it can go even to the extent it's, it's, it's a jealousy, it's a wanting what they have, and it will, if you're not careful, it will turn into a hatred for that person because they have what you don't have. I teach school, I teach high school, I see this every single day. It is part of our depravity, it is part of our human nature, and if we don't watch it as Christians, it's right there and it will raise its ugly head and we'll be envious. And it can be of things, stuff, cars, it can be of positions, in your job, promotions. Just a job in general. You want a certain job, this guy has it, you get jealous. All of those things, we have to guard against this. And Peter says, lay it aside. If you have that problem today, it's, it's okay. Here's the time. Cast it away. Get rid of it. And then the last one he says is evil speaking. This one's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians 12.20. And there it's translated as backbiters or at least in the New King James, I think ESV as well, it's, it's translated as back, backbiters. It's speaking evil against other people, especially against our fellow Christians. Do you think this is a problem that we have today? Yes. The question is, is it a problem with you? Do you find yourself doing this? What is it about this that makes us want to do it so bad? And it's, it's, again, it's part of our depravity. It's part of our nature to do this, our human nature. And I think mainly, I think a lot of it is our pride. Because if we can talk bad about other people, it makes us feel better about ourselves. We build ourselves up by finding faults in others. There's a line in, in um, Facing the Giants. If you've seen that movie... Christian movie about the football team. The coach is talking to a young man, and, and the, the, the kid that's on, on the football team is bad-mouthing his dad. And the coach makes the line, he says, you can't judge other people by their actions and judge yourself by your intentions. And I thought, that's a great line because that's what we do. I judge myself. I look at myself, and I, and I judge it by what I intend to do. My thoughts, I, I really don't mean to hurt somebody's feelings. And actually, I just look at the good stuff. The bad stuff I kind of I overlook when it's myself. But when I look at others, I judge what's actually there. I judge their actions. And then I take it to another level and I talk bad about them. And I point out their actions to others. But I don't approach them with the problem. That's the, back, that's the backbiting that he's talking about. And there is no room for it. There's no room for it in the body of Christ. There's no room for it in our lives as Christians because it does not glorify God. And so in that first verse there, Peter's saying, remember verse 23, because you're born again, this is not corruptible seed. You are born of the perfect one. What Nate was talking about today this morning, the deity of Christ, the God-man, the one who created us, born here, died here, lived again here, we're born of Him. We're born of His perfect, of His perfect holiness, 
His perfect life is applied to us. Because of that, we have the ability and we have the command to lay these things aside. And then in verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And you look, at, you look back at the list of things in verse 1, and they're all things that we tend to do in life. We hide our emotions. We put a mask on. We hide our sin. We hide our hypocrisy. All of these things, we learn to hide and put up a false front. It's, it's fake. How much of our world that we live in is fake? Most of it. Most of it. You watch a movie, it's fake. I, 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 talk to, I talk to students a lot. You know, there used to be the old debate on whether or not the pro wrestling was real or not. And there was actually people that believed that stuff was real. Sorry, Ronnie. It's like, no, it's not. And that, now we have reality TV, Survivor, and, and I don't even know. I think that's the one that got started. There's so many different reality TV shows and people, I, I talk to my students, they're like, no, it's real. Like, no, it's not. Well, how are they going to do it? Well, the same way when you watch a movie, everybody knows that's fake, or most people do. So, although if you go around the Star Wars deal right now, there may be some people there. But, <laughs> but when we watch a movie, we know, okay, this guy's acting. He didn't really get his head chopped off or... I mean, I saw him on the talk show a week later, and it's still intact. But yet on this reality show, because they tell you it's real, well, oh, it must be real. No, it's still just script. It's just being acted out like it's real. So we live in this false reality. We have these fake things, and we learn at an early age to, to put false things up. It goes something like this. If you go into a class or a group of kindergartners, and you ask for a volunteer, what do you get? Lots of hands. Every single one of them, and they're jumping up and down, pick me, pick me, pick me. You go into a junior high age, what do you get? About half. You get about half the amount of hands. If I ask a group of adults, hey, I need a volunteer, how many is going to raise their hand? It might be like one crazy one, right? They've been conditioned because at some point in their life, they got in front of people and they got embarrassed. And so now I would really like to participate, but there's no way I'm taking the risk. I'm going to act cool. I'm going to put on this front. And I'm going to see what happens to somebody else. So it's kind of like that. Well, but when you look at newborn babies, this isn't so. When it says... To be as newborn babes, part of what he's talking about is to be transparent. Babies let their emotions known. They let their emotions be known. They let their needs be known. There's no pride with a newborn baby. And it's also referring back to the whole regeneration being born again. As we come to Christ, we're actually made alive. It's a, it's a new birth. It's a new beginning. And that's how we should be as Christians. We should consider that, that we're newborn babes in Christ and we have to learn. And he says the pure milk of the Word, the early stages of study in the Word of God. 
That's what causes us to grow. If you have a newborn baby and that baby doesn't get milk, he or she is not going to grow. They're not going to develop, right? It's going to be a problem. They're going to have malnutrition. Well, do they desire milk? Parents in here know it. When it's time to eat, it's time to eat now. They want it. They desire it. They need it. And that's how we as Christians should be. We should have that same desire for the Word of God the way a newborn baby does for milk. We should, we should, we want it now. We shouldn't skip. I mean, a newborn baby, they're not skipping a meal. There's been a few parents try it at 2 a.m. It's your turn. No, it's your turn. Maybe, maybe she'll go back to sleep. It never happens. They want the milk. They need the milk. They have to have it. That's how we should be um, as Christians. We should yearn for it. And then verse 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So it's a plea back to your salvation. It's a plea back to the new birth. But I I love the words that he uses here. And it's actually probably somewhat referring back to Psalm 34, 8. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasted that the Lord is gracious. And think of this. Christ is gracious in his person, nature, and character. And it's always been this way. He demonstrated this graciousness by coming. What we heard this morning was his graciousness. I was thinking, as Nate was talking, you know, I would not want to be a baby again. With my limited knowledge on this earth, I would not want to be a newborn again and be completely dependent physically on somebody else. But here we have the creator, the one who created the entire concept of newborns, comes down in that flesh goes through birth. He was in the womb. The God of all creation in the womb is born. That is gracious. He left the throne. He left heaven to come down to this earth. And then he lives the perfect life. No sin. Never dishonors his mother and father. But yet he, ha- he still has to deal with the physical problems that we deal with, hot, cold, thirsty, hungry, sickness, death all around him, just same as us. I mean, he was alive for 33 years on this earth. He obviously saw people die, people he cared about. He wept. All of that. Why? Because he's gracious. Then we know the story. He dies. He takes this crazy physical punishment of the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion, which was, was really very minute compared to the spiritual thing that was going on there where he receives the wrath of God on the cross. He dies. He died. The only human... As we heard this morning, he was a human. He was born. The only human that ever walked this earth that did not deserve to die. The only one 
Every single one of us deserves it. Why? Because we're sinners. We're born into sin. We live into sin. We deserve to die, but he did not, but yet he died. And then he comes out of the grave. Why does he come out of the grave? Well, for one thing, the grave can't hold him because he is perfect, because he is God. And he comes forth and he reveals himself. He allows people to see him. Then he spends time on the earth teaching the apostles, teaching the disciples of all these truths so that they can go forth and proclaim it all because of his gracious nature. And think about this. When we had neither thought nor wish to come to him for salvation, he came to us with salvation. And have you tasted that? Have you tasted that grace today? Because if you have tasted it, and you think on that, and you think on that's a taste you cannot forget, you can lay aside these things. And then verse 4 and 5 It says, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. These two verses together paint a picture of how Christ and his followers are a temple which is being built together. This is one of the... It, it is an amazing thing to think of the privileges that are allowed to us by our Creator, by our Savior. Obviously, Christ is the foundation, the chief cornerstone. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2, he elaborates on this concept. Starting in verse 19, he says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place, Of God in the Spirit. When you look back at Peter in verse 5, he makes it clear that we also are living stones built on top of the foundation, which is Christ. He's painting a picture here, he's given us a visual thing to grasp of the spiritual house that God is building. So we come to Christ. We see the foundation. We come to Him and He uses us to build the temple. We come to Him as the foundation. We become a temple. If we come to Him as the chief priest, we become a holy priesthood. And as we accept His great sacrifice, He allows us to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And He's painting this picture as we we can see a physical temple. You can think back of Solomon's temple. 
obviously glorious, strong, made of stone. But yet, it was still corruptible. That physical temple, those stones, they'll eventually weather. If you go to a, to a cemetery and you find the really old tombstones, do you notice how they're breaking down? A lot of them you can't see the etchings in them anymore because the acid and the rain the, and, and just different weather and moss growing on them eventually breaks down even stone. Everything is corruptible. Or they could be destroyed by man, which we saw with the actual temple. Completely pushed over, plowed up. No stone was left on top of another. But not this temple. Not this temple that he is building right now. This temple is built on Christ as the foundation. And it will not fall. And if this foundation is eternal... And Christ is eternal. Aren't the living stones, which God, the great builder, is building on top of them, aren't they eternal as well? Won't this temple, won't he build this temple to last for eternity? Isn't that what he said? And so he does this, and he gives us a place for our spiritual sacrifices to be acceptable to God. It's not, it's not, no, we no longer go in and have to slaughter an animal and put it on an altar. That sacrifice has been made. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He did give His life, and it is paid in full. That's what He said, right? It is finished. And so that sacrifice has been made so that we can now make spiritual sacrifices in this living temple. And how are those made? How are those sacrifices made? They're made in our mind. Offering up prayer. Offering up worship. Offering up songs to the, to the God, to the Lamb, to the one who fulfilled that sacrifice. They're also made in our feet. By denying ourselves, taking up our cross, by denying our own desires and giving to others, giving to His sheep, giving to to his fold. And that's what verse 4 and 5, we have this incredible picture of the temple. And then verse 6, he says, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief's cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Going on verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Here Peter's quoting back into the Old Testament, which is glorious. I mean, to see the Holy Spirit use Peter, use the old scriptures, it's, it's, it's all the same. It's all the Word of God. It's all Christ. And when you look at 6 and 7, you think about the many that are out there which claim to be the temple. There are churches that would claim you do not have the truth because you don't follow them. Does anybody know any churches like that? There's a few. If you're not part of this church, this name, this whatever it is, you don't have the truth. Because you don't belong to the true church. 
There's others that claim you are lost because you don't follow the rites and religious ceremonies that they do. But you rarely, in those places, hear of the foundation. You, you hear about the temple, the, what was built, but you rarely hear about the foundation. Just kind of a warning, if, you, if there's a place that you hear a lot about their church and you don't hear about Christ, there's a, probably a problem there and it's probably a good place to avoid. Just some simple advice there. Because the truth is, without the foundation, and anybody who's ever built any, anything knows this, Without a good, solid foundation, whatever is built on top of it is going to fall. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Some of them stand longer than others, but without the solid foundation, it will fall. You rarely hear of the chief cornerstone, but the true church is made up of believers in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you're part of this spiritual temple built upon him and you will not be put to shame you'll be tried they will try to put you to shame but in the end you will not be in verse 9 but you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light no it's actually the opposite of shame here. We're a chosen generation. I mean, think about this for a moment. Just stop. Think think just for a second what he's saying here. When the men of this world try to shame us, just know that you are accepted and you are celebrated by God. You're accepted and you're celebrated by Christ, the one who created you. And remember this. As you read down through there. They must reject us. The world has to reject us. Why? Because they rejected the chief cornerstone. You can't say, oh, I really like the building. I just wish we could get rid of that foundation. It doesn't work that way. The building is built on the foundation. So because they rejected the foundation, because they rejected the chief cornerstone, they must reject us. Outside of Christ and Him intervening, the world will always reject Him and His people. And so remember that. And so our job is not to point to our temple, but to point to that foundation upon which the temple is built. And we're to proclaim the praises of him who called you, I mean, out of the darkness and into that marvelous light. I mean, if you just think about that for a minute. You remember when the blind man was saved? I, I talked to Avery not too long about this. When Jesus healed the blind man, and there was all this debate going on on, did Jesus heal on the Sabbath? And they're asking him, and they're going to put him out of the fellowship and all of these things are going on and you remember what the blind man's response was basically i don't know what all y'all are talking about this i know i was blind but now i see how fitting is that for our salvation we were in darkness and when we're talking about darkness here we're not talking about kind of dark 
I've heard Ronnie talk. Ronnie used to work in a mine. And, and if you've ever been in a cave, if they've ever turned the lights out, you know what darkness is. Complete, utter darkness. It's not like you let your eyes adjust for a second, and okay, now I can find my way. No, when you're in there, you don't know which way's up. You don't know which, I mean, you have no idea. You can try to feel your way around. You have no idea where you're going. That's darkness. You can't get out by yourself without light. And yet he led us out of this darkness. And there's people, we all know, out there that are stumbling around in the darkness, have no idea which way to go, and we can give them this light. We can show them to the light. And that's our job. That's what we should be doing. And then verse 10 He says, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have attained mercy. More glorious news. Another great reason. Remember the book of Peter was written in the midst of all the suffering and persecution and all the hard times and trials. And here we have this. In all of these persecutions, you're a royal priesthood. Through all of these things... You're accepted and loved by God. You weren't a people. You were nobody. We were Gentiles, lost. But he has made us a people. We weren't part of the priesthood. I wasn't of the tribe of Levi. Or even the tribe of Judah or any type of Israelite. No, I was a Gentile, lowly and lost. I wasn't of any type of royal lineage and neither were you. We were the lineage of the poor. We're the lineage of the downcast. We're paupers. Even worse, my lineage is crooks and thieves and murderers. Isn't that what we were? But yet he has given us mercy. We have obtained mercy. And now we are a royal priesthood. I don't think we grasp that. I think part of it is our... As our culture, we don't understand royalty in this culture, in this country, because we don't have it. I think places where royalty is real and it's held in incredible esteem, like what we're talking about here, I think we might grasp this better, that you become, you go from a lowly pauper to sitting at the table of the king. That's awesome. And no matter what all the other paupers do to you, No matter what they say, you're going to go home and sit at the king's table and eat the king's food and feast. That helps us, doesn't it? Doesn't that help us to persevere through the persecutions, through the trials, through the sickness, through the death? It's all temporary. And then verse 11 and 12 He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. John John Piper pointed out here, that there's these two verses point out the two greatest issues in the world. The first one is the war 
against the soul or the salvation of the soul in general. Salvation. One of the greatest issues that we deal with in the world. And the second one is the glory of God. And the fact that these are the two most important issues that we face in this world and the fact that we hear so little about them proves that we're not of this world. The world doesn't even know its own two greatest issues. And it's not close. It's not like is developing a cure for cancer up there close with eternal salvation. No. No, there's a huge separation between eternal salvation and developing a cure for AIDS or feeding the hungry. I'm not saying those aren't important things. They are. But eternal value is so much greater and the glory of God is so much greater and they go hand in hand. I mean, if you think about it, the government, there's a wealth of government and private resources devoting how to wage war on things, right? Do you remember in the 80s, I think it was the 80s, the war on drugs? Just say no. Well, it didn't work. Because it was attacking, it was trying to, it was attacking the, the problem, the symptoms, not the problem. But there's, there's, you can get all kinds of resources from both government and private sources, waging war on drugs or alcohol or AIDS or terrorism or cholesterol or you name it. There's all these problems that are held so high. Listen to the presidential debates if you can stand it. On both sides, they, they don't even realize what the real issues are. But they never mention. You never hear eternal value. You never hear glory, God's glory. Why? Because they're not, they are of this world. We're not of this world. And so Peter reminds us again, this world is not our home. We're sent here as a royal priesthood to help wage this battle. I mean, and, and that's why I love the language that he uses, sojourners, pilgrims. We're not of this world. We're just, I mean, the, the, the song is true. We really are just passing through. We have a job to do while we're here. And we've heard a lot recently. Uh, Brady came and preached, and he talked about his evangelism, his open-air preaching. Randy did a lesson on it a couple Wednesdays ago. We've heard a lot about its importance because that's our job. That's what we're here for. And we also know that there's a certain amount of fear that comes with evangelism. Brady talked about that, and Randy did too. And anybody who's ever evangelized, other than those few occasions where God just so opens the door, you're doing it before you even realize what's going on. But a lot of times you have to be more intentional than that. A lot of times you have to decide, okay, I really want to share the gospel, and you have to pray for those times. And then whenever it comes time, there's like a fear. Well, if we think about these things in this manner, does it help overcome the fear? The fact that you've been called into a royal priesthood, and you have a, you now have a command from the great high priest to go forth and preach the gospel? 
I heard um, a guy named Kevin Williams preach. He's from England, and he, he does some door-to-door stuff, and I heard him talk about this. And he said every driveway or every time he walks up to a house, he would have that fear. And it, door-to-door is tough. It's one of the tougher ones to go knock on somebody's door. And you have no idea who's on the other side. But he's, he said he thought one time, and he, being from England, he may understand this a little better. If he would have had a proclamation from the king to go proclaim something to each house, he wouldn't have been f- afraid, right? If the president, like him or not, gives you the proclamation, hey, go tell everybody there's going to be this happening. Everybody needs to know. You go door to door to make sure they know. You wouldn't be afraid to do that. You have a proclamation from the a higher power. Well, think about that. Think about us, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a chosen people. We weren't a people, but now we are. And we have a proclamation from the, the high king, the king of kings, the great high priest. And he says, go proclaim the gospel. Go share the gospel. And we go to knock on that door. What are we afraid of? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They kill you? Like, he's not in control of that. You know, we talked about family, and evangelizing to family is the hardest one. And there's two reasons that kind of came up. One is, we have to see them again. We have to see them every day, and they may think you're some kind of religious nut. Well, I hope they do. I hope that's how we live, zealous. But the other thing is, they also know our lives. They also may see a fair amount of hypocrisy as it, as it goes back the beginning of that but it helps us to overcome the fear to think about who god has told us here that we are and then also abstaining putting aside these things these fleshly lusts will help us overcome that fear for two reasons one we don't have to worry about we're not feeling guilty of that hypocrisy and the two two is the more that we put aside this malice, the more we put aside this evil speaking, this hypocrisy, this guile, the closer that we draw to Christ. And the closer that we are to Him, the less fear that we'll have when we go to evangelize. And when we do that, we're a walking testimony of His grace and glory when we abstain from those things. And then verse 12, and we'll close. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this is the other single most important issue in our world. And when you look at verse 12, that's how verse 11 works. I'll give you three examples of ways that non-believers are impacted by honorable conduct. One is through a humble act of love. Just loving somebody. Putting aside your day-to-day, your, your pride, putting aside what's important to you and showing love to somebody is an incredible thing. The second is a righteous act of courage. Doing something that shows bravery. 
putting your own safety at risk to save another, putting your own needs at risk to save another. And then the last one is self-denying act of generosity. Whether it's financial or time that you give up to somebody else and it costs you. You know, nobody is, is, is impressed when you help somebody but it didn't really cost you anything. But when you give up time with your family or you give up the time that you needed to rest, you give up sleep, you give up financial finances that and and it's not like it, it's whenever it actually may you may feel it at home you may not have as much you may not be able to make your bills as easily you may not have anything to save it, it actually puts a dent in your pocket to help somebody else that goes a long ways and they point to god's glory because they point to a stable sure satisfying object of desire and hope that is not of this world. It's actions that we do that are opposite of what the world does. That's what it is. I don't know if you guys got to see the the football team in Stratford played a state championship, what, two weeks ago? Has it been two weeks? Or a week ago, whenever it was. We have heard, since that game, we have heard a lot of things about the sportsmanship and the the good behavior of that team, because they really are just a good group of young men. But there's one thing that stood out to so many people, and there was a guy from the other team got hurt, and he was laying on the field for, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. It it was long enough to where you, you started going, this could be serious. I mean, you see injuries all the time, but this could be a broken neck. There could be major damage. And so while he was on the field, the Stratford team just gathered up. I don't have any idea who initiated it or anything, but we looked down there, and they're all gathered up praying for that young man. And there has been more people comment about that. And trust me, those little things, they may seem little, and it really does seem little. I mean, for a, Christ, for a group of Christians to get together and pray for somebody who's hurt, it's not a big thing, right? But out there, on that stage, it was a big thing. Why? Because there were people who thought, that is different. We've never seen that before in a football game. We've never seen that before in a public school event. Why does it impact them so much? Because it is opposite of the world. And so it, it, it doesn't have to be these great things all the time. But that we would live and that we would walk in a way where we do put aside that malice. And we do put aside that envy. And we do put aside all those things. If we'll just walk in that, those things will come. It was a natural thing for that group of boys to get together and pray. I believe because of a lot of them are Christians. And there's unbelievers that are sitting in the stands that notice that and go, man, there's just something different about these guys. That should be our lives every day. No matter what is going on, somebody at some point in a Christian's life should go, man, she is just different. Or he's different. What is it? I can't figure it out. What makes them so different? 
And maybe eventually they'll ask. Or maybe eventually you'll get a chance to tell them. But that's what he's talking about. These behaviors, they put, and that glorifies God. Because it's stable. Because it's sure. And because it's truly satisfying. It's the only truth that people get to see in this world of fake reality. And they finally see something real, which is Christ. It's his word coming through his believers. And so to tie all this together, it's simply laying aside worldly behavior. That's all it is. It's acting like who we are in Christ because four things. Because we've been made or we've been born again and made alive in Christ. And because we have tasted such great grace and mercy. Because we are a royal priesthood and because we are now the people of God. We were at enmity with God, and now we are his people. And so in order to glorify God in this God-hating world, it, it really is simple. We focus our desires on him so that our hope is in him and not in this world. I mean, that sums it all up. And in this time, as, as we heard this morning um, of... Uh, in this Christmas season, we should do that. And, and, and it's, it's amazing. Listen, next week, don't let that stop. If you talk to like food pantries and shelters and things like that, this time of year they're actually full. Do you know that? This is the best time of year for them because people find themselves in more of a giving Mood, which is, I, I think that's fantastic. I, I, I do, I am happy to see that. The problem is, Thursday we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ, and a week later it's going to be one of the biggest drunken parties that there is. But as Christians, we have no place in that. As Christians, we should continue this same giving attitude and this same mindset of Christ next week and the week after and the week after it doesn't have a season it's not a seasonal thing for us it's not we celebrate his birth now and then i'll see you again on easter and we'll celebrate the resurrection no we celebrate the birth and the resurrection every day the entire gospel and that's what we should be striving to do and it should be a daily walk in our lives let's pray father Again, I thank you for for your word. The amazing thing that we have it. I, I thank you that we, in, in this time in our lives, have the access to it with no problem. Full access to your word. Um, I pray, God, that you would reveal it more to us. Give us more of a yearning for it like a babe desires milk. Give us more of a, a need for your scriptures. Because God, as we read them, the more that we read and, and seek you, the more that it comes out of us. And if we want to be used in your kingdom, that's how it happens. If we just keep putting it in so that it keeps coming out, God. I thank you. I just thank you that it's there. And I pray, Lord, that um, if there's any here who have not tasted that sweet grace, 
that you would, that you would lead them out of that darkness and into the glorious light, that you would open their eyes that they may see, that they would get a taste of that grace and that they could put aside these things. And all of us, all, all of us who have, God, that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to lay these things aside and to focus on the cross and to focus on Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.